If you aren't local to Western Pennsylvania, you might not be aware that Pittsburgh has more bridges than any other city in the world. Even more than Venice, Italy. I think the reason you might not know that if you don't live here is because it's actually not true. If you go by the U.S. Department of Transportation's definition of what even constitutes a bridge, we don't even have the most bridges in the state, but both the myth and the unfounded braggadocio of the natives that we are the city of bridges persist in spite of all evidence to the contrary. And by evidence, I don't even mean the stupid department of whatever and their fancy counting numbers. I mean the fact that we just had one of our bridges collapse on us earlier this year. Nobody was hurt, so we allow ourselves to joke about it. And after all, it isn't every day you get to see a city bus lifted from a giant ditch with a crane. Unless, again, you live in Pittsburgh, in which case lifting city buses out of giant ditches is getting to be like the third most popular use for cranes. And then there was the Greenfield Bridge that, before it was demolished and rebuilt, had a second bridge built under it to catch falling debris from the bridge before it could destroy cars on the highway below because the old Greenfield Bridge was slowly crumbling and fixing things is expensive. And then there was the time where we were actually spending money to fix the Liberty Bridge and in the process ended up setting the bridge on fire. All this by way of saying that even when you're really good at it, and when you have the entire might of a nation's industry at your disposal, building a bridge is really hard. Today's film is, in its most simplistic terms, about how hard it is to build a bridge. Yes, it's also about war and colonialism, and duty, honor, survival, madness. But the bridge is right there in the title. Sometimes a title perfectly encapsulates the essence of the story, like Treasure Island or Dirty Dancing. That pretty much sums it up. There's an island, it's got treasure on it. There's dancing, it gets dirty. No huge surprises coming. This movie is not one of those movies. It may sound cut and dry from the title but there is nothing simple or clear about the plot, the characters, or their motivations, or even what side of the conflict should have your empathy. Who's the bad guy? Is there a bad guy? If there isn't a bad guy, is there a good guy? The only thing I know for sure from watching this film is that if you have a crack troop of British military engineers with a possibly insane colonial narcissist leading them who can build a wooden bridge in the jungle that will last for 600 years, can you send them to Pittsburgh, please? Our shit is actually falling apart up here. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So remember General Yamashita's motto and be happy in your work with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we discuss director David Lean's first real foray into grand star-studded epics featuring Alec Guinness that snatch up Oscar statuettes like a cartoon serial mascot, this time from 1957. The Bridge on the River Kwai. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. 
And today we're here to talk about a very famous film by director David Lean, The Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957. I'm sure we'll all have a lot to say about the director and his films. And Katie's here to start us off with her mission briefing. This isn't our first David Lean, but it is generally considered the first of his epic films. And it went on to win Best Picture, Director, Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, and Score. It was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It was met with huge critical acclaim for both its beautiful production values and the mesmerizing story that examined the reality of war from a different angle than most of them had at the time of its release. Critics and audiences loved the film from the first, and that still holds true today. While some of the characters are based on real people, and it has similarities to the situation in the POW camps of the time, it is not based on a true story. Pierre Boulle, who had been a prisoner of war, used his own experiences to inform the novel, and ended up getting the screenwriting credit when it was actually Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, both of whom had been blacklisted at the time, who wrote the screenplay. Bridge on the River Kwai focuses on three men, Colonel Saito, Shears, and most famously, Colonel Nicholson, as played by Alec Guinness. My introduction to Alec Guinness, that I remember at least, was as Obi-Wan Kenobi, which I think is generally our generation's introduction to Alec Guinness. So, what did you guys think of his performance in this? Dan? Yeah, I think you predicted very well what my experience would have been based on my age and generation. And indeed, Ben Kenobi is the first role I saw Alec Guinness play. Um, And then I worked my way backwards from there. Although, now that I think about it, I haven't seen him in all that many things. I think once I started looking into kind of classic old film that was highly praised... I think my next experience was to see him playing Prince Faisal in Lawrence of Arabia from 1962, uh, which we'll talk about when we get to that film. You know, I wouldn't say it's a controversial role because there's a lot of brown face in that movie. And that's kind of the way they did things back then. Um, But it was an exceptional performance. And I could tell he was a really great actor from that. I'm sure there's something else I'm forgetting right now, but that's about my extent. Uh, And of course, in Dr. Zhivago, which we also watch for the show, if you want to go back to one of our previous episodes. Liam, do you you have a different story? I, yes and no, because I think it is safe to assume that like we all saw him first as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a very, very close second for me in a weird role that I don't think anybody associates Alec Guinness with. I've been watching this movie for almost as long as I've been watching star Wars. It is a musical version of a Christmas Carol Mm -hmm. called Scrooge with Albert Finney in the role of Ebenezer Scrooge. And Alec Guinness plays Marley's ghost. Oh, And it is a fucking fascinating performance, especially there's this very weird, like late sixties, early seventies kind of scene where after the ghost of Christmas future scares him with his skeletal face, he falls into a grave and goes to hell. Whoa. And like Marley is there just absolutely giddy at having Ebenezer Scrooge in hell with him. And it is a a very bizarre performance, but I love it to death. So I know him as the 
super wise, super powerful space wizard and a silly ghost in a musical Dickensian Christmas morality tale. A classic. Yeah. So if you get a chance to look it up, it is my preferred version of a Christmas carol. So for all of its flaws, it is fabulous. And then I think third was probably Lawrence of Arabia. Maybe this one. I can't remember which one I saw first. Katie? So I think I've seen Alec Guinness, of course, in the two we were talking about, and Dr. Zhivago. And I'm pretty sure that I remember watching him and Genevieve Bujold in Caesar and Cleopatra, which was like a TV movie that I'm fairly certain I watched like on... Uh, masterpiece theater or some kind of thing if i'm remembering correctly if so i don't have much experience with him either but i do think it's fascinating the comparisons between this role and the obi-wan role and we definitely have to talk about that he came up doing shakespeare around the same time as john gilgood mm-hmm. uh, like they were very much of the same uh the same generation but honestly if it if it hadn't been for John Gilgood, we probably would have thought of Alec Guinness as the premier Shakespearean actor of that generation. His enunciation and his his reading of the scansion was actually considered to be superior in a lot of ways. But John Gilgood was just such a good actor at, you know, conveying the emotion behind things that I think he ended up taking a lot of the limelight there. And where are you guys at on uh, David Lead in general? Are you, like me, limited to the ones we've watched on the show and or famous ones? Yes. I believe, I, I looked through the film, through his filmography today, and I think I, it's the ones we've watched and maybe one or two others. Yeah, because this kind of started his fame. It was Bridge, then Lawrence of Arabia, Zhivago, Ryan's Daughter, and... A Passage to India, I think, which I haven't seen yet. And then he died in 1990. This was definitely before he had the clout of the premier British filmmaker. And it was kind of a rough time in his life, too. If you look into the trivia, he was going through a really bad divorce. And he had to borrow money from the production at the beginning to, like, fix his teeth and other other things like that. (laughs) So clearly not the director coming off of later off of the success of well this film for one and lords of arabia but i mean he's got a stack of oscars after after these first three films like we said this isn't exactly based on a real story but there were many pow's who worked on building this railroad for the japanese during the war and so there is some history to talk about here our researchers today are jim randall who i probably won't talk about what he wrote here in the episode but he wrote us a nice excerpt basically an experience from someone that he knew who was actually a pow in burma and so that'll be in our surplus ordinance you can read that there Mike D, our longtime contributor who has been with us since the beginning of the podcast, gave us a little bit of background on what exactly the Japanese were doing at this point in the war and in this part of the world. A major point of Japanese propaganda was Asia for Asians. Japan advertised itself as expelling colonial powers from Asia. In actuality, Japan often treated the countries it subjugated worse than the European colonial powers, but the idea of Asia for Asians was powerful. Thailand is the only nation in this region that was not colonized. 
the Thai kingdom had been able to maintain its independence. At the time of World War II, however, Thailand was ruled by a fascist dictatorship that sought friendly relations with Japan as part of how they avoided being colonized. Also, if you notice the nomenclature, it's a little bit confusing because even I thought, hey, wasn't this called Siam back in this time? But actually, the name has changed several times, and so in the pre-World War II period, it was Siam, and then a fascist dictatorship took over during World War II where they reverted it to Thailand, the land of the Thai, comes from probably the Thai people in China, the free people of Thai, that's kind of where the name comes from. It reverted back to Siam for about a three-year period, three or four years between the end of the war in 1949, when the name was officially changed back to the Kingdom of Thailand. Next to Thailand was Burma, what's known today as Myanmar. Burma was a British colony at this time, the Burmese independence movement invited the Japanese in and cooperated with the Japanese as an attempt to push the British colonial masters out. The British were using Burma as a path to supply the KMT or Kuomintang, the nationalist Chinese controlled by Chiang Kai-shek in their war with Japan. They moved supplies to China over the Burma road and via an air route called the Hump. Burma bordered British India. So this is part of a two-pronged strategy by the Japanese. The attack at Pearl Harbor to kind of disable the American Pacific Fleet and then pushing westward towards India. But the problem with Japan was a lack of resources. They imported almost all of their oil. And so that's part of what pushed their imperialism during the war is if they were not taking over all these other territories with resources, wood, oil, rubber, etc., they wouldn't have been able to continue pursuing the war. So that was a big part of the Japanese war effort. So as the Japanese invaded Southeast Asia, when they got to Singapore, which was under control of the British, they eventually overwhelmed the British and General Percival there, who was in charge, actually officially surrendered to the Japanese. That's where the Japanese picked up probably the largest group of POWs. Uh, there was 85,000 soldiers that were mixed kind of Indian National Army, you know, British troops and other Commonwealth forces, Australians, Dutch soldiers. The Japanese took prisoners from the Dutch East Indies, and in the end, kind of between Polynesia all the way to Burma, etc., the Japanese captured between 200 and 250,000 prisoners, and this group that we see building this railroad was a small part of that. The actual bridge on the River Kwai actually crossed the Mekong River. The Noi River is nearby. And Quay often gets confused with Kwai by non-Thai speakers. This film became so popular that the Thai government actually changed the name of this stretch of the river to Kwai just because they wanted the bridge, which is still there, to kind of match the name so that tourists would have a place to go. And it's really a it's still a popular attraction to this day. The original bridge was part of what the Allies called the Railway of Death because there was kind of forced marches to get the prisoners to this far part of Burma in the first place, sometimes marching through the jungle for 17 days straight. Many, many prisoners died. As you know, the Japanese soldiers were already undersupplied and underfed, so you can imagine how, you know, what the prisoners were able to eat. And we'll talk a little bit about the differences between real life and this story. 
But uh, in real life, there was a wooden bridge that was constructed just to get equipment back and forth across the river while they were building the real bridge, which is built of concrete and steel. And that original bridge was similar in look to the bridge that we see in the film. So there is some real background to the look of the bridge in the film. And then the actual bridge, which was Bridge 277, still exists in this part of the world and you can go see it. And there's lots of images online. Uh, Jim actually visited this part of Thailand uh, about 10 years ago, and I'll put some of his pictures up in the surplus ordinance. So the film opens with a lot of wide shots of men building railroads in the jungle. And it, to a certain extent, feels like it's starting from this very large perspective that then dials in to a prisoner of war camp slash work site where they are trying to build a bridge across the River Kwai. The first real character that we're introduced to is Shears. And did we ever find out his partner's name? The Australian guy who sadly bites it really early? I don't remember him having a name. Is he, is he credited? While you guys are looking that up, I don't know if you recognize the name Percy Herbert. He played Grogan. He's the blonde guy with kind of a big bulbous nose. Yes. He eventually uh, dresses in drag during the show towards the end. Yes. Okay. He's tall and wide, right? Yeah. And he was in Mutiny on the Bounty, the one with Marlon Brando. I kind of looked him up. He was a fucking POW for four years in one of these camps for real. And I'm like, damn, how was he not like the consultant? He seems to just kind of play this small bit part. It's an interesting bit part, though. He kind of gets to be his own little character because, I mean, there's a few who get these little bit parts, like sexy Australian guy. And I think they add a lot to it. And we're introduced to several of them kind of in the beginning. The film does a good job of laying out like, here are our players in this, which is Shears. The Do we ever find out? what he is beyond what he what he actually is yeah i do believe that that the sort of scene where either he fesses up or he realizes they know the real story i think they describe it in there but i can't remember he was enlisted i remember that yeah he's an enlisted man he is he's definitely impersonating an officer yes, yes. look i'm not a navy commander I, i'm not even an officer Ooh. no the whole thing's a fake i'm just an Ordinary swab jockey, second class. This was like your average sailor who then ended up in a POW camp and in a condition to steal someone's identity. And so he did it all part of an overarching theme, I think, that is trying to paint Shears as kind of a person of low morals and integrity, at least in the first half of the film. Like, really, he just wants to be drinking martinis on the beach and escaping to his nurse girlfriend. But then, you know, as we find out later on, he kind of gets blackmailed into going back to this camp. Shears' character I I found interesting because it was kind of like, you're kind of an asshole, but you're really likable. What'd you guys think? I think he's a stand-in for America in this British film. Yeah. It has to be conscripted into being in this war in the first place. And... Lots of high-minded ideals. Well, he's scrappy, he's resourceful, Mm -hmm. devil-may-care attitude. I think that is very much the image that the English would have had of Americans in World War II. Above all, he's an individualist. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's totally the perspective, especially then, of Americans from everything that I've read, especially GIs. He's he's not unlike the the cooler king in The Great Escape. He's got a a Mm -hmm. proto-Steve McQueen kind of vibe going on. 
He does. He totally does. I could see that. And not to jump too far ahead, but just in to further paint Cheer's character, the scene where they're bringing in the other volunteers or, or SAS guys that are going to end up on this raid and Lieutenant Joyce comes in, the Canadian. And I think as he tells his story and Shears realized that he like signed up and volunteered, he's like, you volunteered? Because <laughs> like, I yes. think that drives that point home. But yeah, you're right. I, I often was thinking about how much Shears feels like an American compared to the other characters. Mm-hmm. If you put a cowboy hat on him and had him smoking a pack of Marlboros or something like that, like you could not have made this a more American character. Yeah, it could have been played by John Wayne for sure. That's exactly what I was thinking. You know, when I first saw this movie when I was little, I was maybe like third or fourth grade or something like that. On the cover, he looks like John Wayne. He does. I don't know if they painted him to look like that on purpose, but on the movie poster, he's throwing some hard-ass John Wayne vibes. I think he does in the film, too. And maybe that's just because I've watched a lot of John Wayne movies. But I mean, like, even the facial, like, it looks like he's John Wayne on the cover, of, on, on the poster of this movie. Mm-hmm. Of course, John Wayne would never have agreed to play this character. Nope. Or signed up to spend three months in the jungle or however long. No, he's, he'd rather make a movie on a uh, on a former nuclear testing site. Let's be fair. William Holden gives a much better performance than John Wayne would have. William Holden is not restrained by any such moral code as an actor. He likes him some ambiguous people. He started out playing like the leading man, like very nice, kind kind of roles. After the war, he had no time or patience for that. I think he he was in seeing the Army Air Corps. Oh, in real life? Yes. yes. There are a lot of veterans in this movie. I would imagine. But his his brother was also serving, and I think his brother got shot down. But when he when he came back from the war, he just wanted his characters much more complicated and interesting. His big role that kind of defined his career was uh, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, I love him in that movie. And he plays like a real, kind of a real piece of shit in that one, too. <laughs> oh, but he's so good at it. I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. I think the first William Holden I saw was him as the as the caddish brother in Sabrina. Yes, I think you're. I think I'm in the same spot. I love that movie too. Sabrina is one of my top five. He was also great in Network later in life. Great, great career, William Holden. Yeah, and he was uh, about 37 or 38 when he filmed this, which is a little old. But I was. I guess he was 45. Also, well, he's like in shape. He has an old face. Yeah, he's like, in, he has a pretty in-shape body for the role, but definitely an older face by about five years, I'd say. I was wondering, I was like, eh. He almost always looked like he was in his mid-40s. Okay. He looks like a chain smoker. That's what he looks like to me. I was like, oh, that's the face. He looked like an American. Yes, it is. It is. And it's got very rugged, you know. Clint Eastwood would be similar later on. So then we are introduced to the second member of this trio of masculinity that the movie focuses on. Colonel Saito, who is the commandant of the POW camp that all the action takes place in. And he is played by Sasue Hayakawa, who was a very well-known silent movie star before this and then had kind of fallen out of a little bit of favor and then came back in this and went on in the 50s. Again, he was he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He's great in this. Which for a Japanese guy... To get that in that era was almost unprecedented. Yeah. And he was 68 in this film. I'm like, whoa. Oh, 
he looks so good in this, like just his facial expressions, his body language, his tone of voice, everything about it. He is a consummate actor in this film. He's very, very engaging in this movie. You can't really take your eyes off him. No, because it's hard to tell. Like, there's so many questions about what his motivation is, I think. For me, at least, that's what I was constantly wondering is what is driving this man to do these things? And when he turns on the charm, he is very charming in this role. That dinner scene, though. Produce of uh, Scotland. I prefer it to sake. I was like, no, yeah, pour, pour me some scotch and hand me back my own red cross rations like fuck yeah let's do this <laughs> let's build a bridge buddy <laughs> he's like very very persuasive so i was always a little bit impressed when people were like no nah, fuck you okay i'm like oh wow yeah it's it's interesting to compare the overall japanese army philosophy to what this character may have been thinking to what the person in real life was doing and thinking the characters inspired by a real major, uh, Risaburo Saito, who, unlike this character, apparently was one of the more reasonable and humane of Japanese officers to the point where the character that Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson is based on. By the way, they call him Colonel in this, even to the point where it says Colonel on the plaque. Technically, Alleganis' character is a Lieutenant Colonel, but that's often just abbreviated to Colonel in speech. And he's based on Lieutenant Colonel Philip John Denton Tuzi is the real guy who actually was in charge of these POWs building this railroad. And Tuzi was at the war crimes tribunal after the war and spoke up on Sato's behalf and probably ended up saving him from the death penalty. Ten years after Tuzi's death in 1975, Sato made a pilgrimage to England to visit his grave. So the real life connection was probably a little softer than what we see in the film but it i thought i found it interesting to juxtapose sort of the british officer stiff upper lip like we're going to abide by the geneva convention and we're gonna follow the rules etc compared to the bushido code and what we know of japanese soldiers and officers at the time which doesn't explain their cruelty and their abuse of prisoners uh, i don't think that bushido explains or excuses that behavior but it does sort of show these two stoic characters from two very different cultures who are both really aligned with their principles and are you know a rock versus a rock like they're not going to budge and, and that made for really good drama i love the portrayal there yes when i was watching it this time i couldn't help but marvel at how not othering this depiction of a cruel Japanese prison commandant is compared to like what it very easily could have been for the time and what we have seen happen many times since. This is a pretty empathetic depiction while also showing like an awful lot of cruelty and torture and all down the line, but there's always a person there that is motivated to do those things. And it isn't just like, oh, he's a villain twisting his Japanese mustache or whatever, you know, like whatever the, the mm -hmm. stereotype would have been at the time. And for the fifties, I think that's pretty impressive. David lean took great pains with this. And I think part of it is getting such a great actor and, and he was a really well-known great actor. 
that was probably partially what allowed him to be a more nuanced character. I think he was probably given more freedom than they gave a lot of the other actors in this, I would say. But he is such an interesting juxtaposition of what the stereotypes of Japan were, what at least what we can understand now of the reality of what it was like. And he does such a great job of making all of that into a real person. He doesn't just kill everyone. He at least tries to make things work when he sees that there's an opportunity, which is better than a lot of what we hear about Japanese POW camps. And we'll get into the reality of those, I think, in a little bit here. But I think that's the most interesting aspect of Saito's character. And congrats to David Lean for facilitating that performance, I would say. Yeah, because certainly we're talking about a time... 15 years after the real events where if you had wanted to paint the Japanese as these horrendous monsters, you would have been not only forgiven, but it might have actually been more accurate than this film. Like this film tones down a lot of the torture and death and conditions of the camp and allows you to have this more nuanced, you know, character come up where you actually start to think like, oh, yeah, what would it be like to run this camp for the Japanese and what was their culture like, etc. So, yeah, like, again, it's a time where he could have gotten away with doing a much brutal treatment. I don't know whether this film ended up being banned in Japan or whether they actually released it in the late 50s, because while certainly it keeps up with the real history somewhat, it's not a bad portrayal of the Japanese overall. It's it's understanding, which I found really interesting. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to be informed by the novel. I haven't read the novel, but I think I might actually have to go back and read it because it seems so fascinating because Pierre Boulle based this on his experiences, and I believe he was in the prison camp that, Dan, you referenced earlier. Okay. So I, I think that's what was going on. And then he kind of made his own story out of it, fictionalized a lot of it. Blew up the bridge. Yes, exactly. I think that bleeds into the story. In addition to Lean making this something of a war allegory, I would say. And then we meet the final member of our trio, which is Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, as we discussed, played by Alec Guinness, who comes in in front of quite a large group of men, leading them as though he is in charge and everything is all good, except half of them don't have shoes, there's no weapons, and everyone's looking pretty down, followed by a small group of very injured men. But they're whistling. Yes, they're whistling. I actually, in my seventh grade history class, I got extra credit just on the teacher's whim because he came in whistling that and then said, does anybody know what that's originally from? And I was the only person in the class that knew what that was from. The Colonel Bogey March. And this is why nobody wonders why Liam got beat up in middle school. <laughs> You're like in the back like this. Nobody understood me. <laughs> I mean, he, there were some good guesses. People named movies that that has been in, you know, from Breakfast Club, Spaceballs, The Parent Trap even. But yes, yes. But yeah, it was originally from this movie. I mean, it's originally a, a song from 1914 
World War One era. That's where mm-hmm. it's originally from. But they then went on to use it in this, and that's what popularized it outside of England and the service, I think. Yeah, and if you look at the lyrics that the British added to the song in World War Two, it's all about Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels' testicles or lack thereof, and it's pretty hilarious. Hitler has only got one ball. Goring. That's too, but very small. And they wanted to actually have the soldiers come in singing the words about Hitler only has one ball and Goering has two, but they're very small. So you can look them up. It's a pretty funny set of lyrics. You know, I can actually hear those lyrics to that song now that you said it. I was yep. like, oh, yeah. No, totally makes sense. But it got the kibosh for being too uh, offensive. But essentially, you're getting the same thing in the whistling. If you were a person from that era and you were alive during World War II, you would remember those lyrics and know that they're basically giving the finger to the axis in that entire scene. Even I didn't know that fact. I, I knew what the song was called and I'd heard the song several times, of course, but that's definitely the attitude they are presenting. Everyone is marching very smartly. They're maintaining all of this discipline and... It's defiance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what really kicks the film off is when they arrive there and you see from a mile away the conflict coming between Saito and Nicholson about who's really in charge of these men. Right. And... (laughs) I don't want to be the actually guy in every scene because, again, this is not exactly based on real life, but just to color the original situation and the real life situation. Most of the comments from POWs who were there were like, A, no one would have had the energy to sing cheerfully after 17 days marching through the jungle during which like several of your mates have been shot and killed simply for not being able to walk anymore. Right. And everyone would have been beaten harshly for being that defiant in public. So, like, there's multiple reasons why in real life that would have never happened. No, but also it, it does remind me a, a little bit of the uh, the scene from Bojest when Markov makes them all laugh. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of absurdity, absurdity that shows that your spirit hasn't been broken. You know, that is what it was intended to do. And I think, oh, for sure. I think in both cases, it really did have the psychological impact that they were looking for. Yeah, I agree. And it totally works for the film. Again, we'll, we'll do this. We'll go back and forth a little bit between reality and the film here. But I think as you'll see a little bit later in some of David Lean's own comments and interviews with him, his whole attitude, which I think is the correct one is not to make a film be like real life. It'll be A, too boring, and B, that's just, it's just not the way film structure works. And I think we all know how successful David Lean was. And so it makes sense to do things that are pointing something out to the audience using the medium of filmmaking and sound, etc. And I think that's especially a comment of its time when we're talking about war films from a generation who had gone through World War One, World War Two, Korea. These are all things that affect the culture. And I think today's culture is very different in how what we expect from our war movies and what we think would be good from them. Although this does feel very modern for the time. Jeez. It does. It's not quite a Vietnam era movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it's like it's got all the like slickness, like the cinematography. It has it has some of the building blocks and some of the cynicism mm. and the moral ambiguity. There's a lot going on in this one. Yes. So to give a brief rundown of what happens, because this film takes a couple of twists and turns. Nicholson 
refuses to allow his officers to work because he says it's against the Geneva Convention. Saito doesn't care, uh, imprisons Nicholson in a hot box. In the oven, as they call it. The oven for... I, I think it's later intimated that it's like a month or something like that, several weeks. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize it was that long. It's a long time. Shears escapes. Right. And makes it makes it to that village. It's weeks at least. So Nicholson refuses to give in. And eventually Saito is pushed so hard because if he doesn't finish this bridge on the deadline, he has to kill himself that he tries to reason with Nicholson. And... Goes on so long. And there are several great scenes I think we'll get into. And eventually, they're able to reach a compromise. And Nicholson, for reasons unknown, decides that he really gives a shit about this bridge. And he's going to build the best damn bridge he could ever build. And that's where things start to get interesting. Well, he tells his men not to attempt escape. From the beginning, right? From the beginning, because they were ordered to surrender. So escaping would be considered a dereliction of duty or, I guess, some form of insubordination, like refusing to obey a direct order. I think that's one of the first signs for me that Nicholson is maybe not all there in logical thinking, because that's a big jump to make of like, well, just surrender because we don't want you all to die versus... If you, if you, you know, escape and come back, you'll be court-martialed for escaping. Like, that seems like a not-so-good leap of logic to me. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much that as much as it follows Sato's reasoning that he gives him in his first speech where he's like, you're in the middle of the jungle. So if you escape, you're basically committing suicide because you're either going to die in the jungle or we're going to shoot you. So, like, that's not a good idea. You can see we don't have a fence here. And that makes sense. That makes sense. But that's not the reason. It's his. That's his like secondary reason, right? You know, <laughs> that's, he's like, oh, and also you'll die trying to escape. But really, I mean, guys, we were ordered to surrender, so we should just surrender. And like, he won't even entertain it when Shears is like, yeah, but we might. You might actually be worse here. He's like, yeah, but no, we're not doing that. Well, and here's here's the interesting thing because when they arrive in the camp, Shears is literally robbing and burying dead bodies it's just another tuesday and they are burying just another dude probably their third one before before lunch that day like i don't know like there's a lot of people die in this camp mm-hmm. not a lot of people die in the camp anymore once nicholson shows up right yes and it's kind of like he's insane but it's also hard to argue with his results. Mm. If the, his goal was to get his men through this as still being British soldiers and alive. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I agree. You know, like, I don't know. It's, you know, watching it this time, it was very interesting trying to figure out because I always just assumed he was crazy, but he's also kind of good at it. he's kind of good at it he's crafty and alive is the most important part of that reasoning and i think that you can see that in real interviews with officers who were there but the death tolls were so high so this is another thing that the reality behind the real story and the background kind of informs a little bit of what's going on with the characters in the film even though you don't see this the conditions being so appalling you know dysentery and cholera just spreading like 
like wildfire. One of the POWs mentioned that the conditions were so atrocious and they had no medicine, no antiseptic, no alcohol, no anything. You could get hit with cholera in the morning, which would pretty much immediately give you diarrhea and dehydrate you even more than you already were and be dead by midnight that day. So the conditions were truly atrocious. And so I think once this new group comes in to the camp and sees the conditions, the idea is, what do I have to do here if my main goal is to get my men to survive this ordeal? And I think the crazy part of it comes up later towards the end of the film, and we'll talk about that very famous scene. But here you can tell that Nicholson is telling his soldiers and his fellow officers two slightly different stories. At least this is my impression. To the soldiers, he's kind of saying, listen, we were ordered to surrender. Now we're POWs. I'm still in charge of you. I'm telling you we need to do what the Japanese tell us and follow the rules of the camp, build the bridge, et cetera, et cetera. To the other officers, and he has a very famous scene where they, in a very quick conversation that Nicholson has with Major Clipton, the uh, medical officer, mm-hmm. he kind of explains the ma- a major theme of the film and his perspective. Take a good look, Clifton. One day the war will be over. And I hope that the people who use this bridge in years to come will remember how it was built and who built it. Not a gang of slaves... But soldiers, British soldiers, Clifton, even in captivity. And that's our guy, Lord Egbert, from the Vikings. Oh, yeah. Rearing his ugly head again. Plays the uh, the medical officer. I didn't realize, but he looked familiar. And so the, the point is that he has to give his men something to live for. You know, the hopes that they get a little bit bigger rice ration tomorrow or that they might see their wives again is not enough to keep you going when you're getting a thousand calories a day there's oppressive heat sun bugs mud monsoons you're working 12 plus hours a day getting maybe two hours of sleep and then be made to do it again while malnourished while having dysentery all that stuff like atrocious conditions and the sheer will is one thing you absolutely need to keep people alive in that scenario. And so I think that's a lot of what's going on is he's telling Clifton, we need to make sure that these men remember that they are British soldiers first and foremost, and that they should take pride in their work and we'll show them how the British army builds a bridge. Now, I think over time, the story morphs into him kind of losing it because, again, he did spend a month in the oven, so to speak. And as we'll talk about later in the end scene, you're kind of questioning his motivation and whose side is he on, etc. But I think all of that makes sense when you look at the bigger picture of what was actually happening to these men. You know, and it's interesting that it seems on first glance and probably second, third and fourth glance that there is some hard classism at play in his protest in that it's not that he doesn't want his men to work. It's that he doesn't want the officers to work because that is not their function. That is beneath them. That is using them poorly. Yes. And it's weird. If you look at it in that perspective, how much the enlisted men are on board with this plan and Saito makes an awful lot of sense and being like, no, fuck you. You work too. However, again, something that occurred to me on this rewatch, the officers not working is kind of like a rock band's green M&M's only thing. I 
I'm not disagreeing, but I'm interested to hear more. You put a stupid thing in your contract clause. Mm-hmm. Not because you're a big shot and you can do that, but it is so that, hey, if they fulfilled the obligation of my contract to have exactly 304 green M&Ms only in a bowl in my dressing room, then I'm also pretty sure that I'm not going to get electrocuted by this microphone when I touch it. Right. You put that in so that you can be reasonably certain that they covered the rest of the shit that they're supposed to do. Now, again, sometimes people take this in insane ways, but that's its basic function. That's the green M&M's function. It makes sense. And this is kind of like that in that I don't actually give a shit if you're making my officers work. We can work. We're people. We can we can do it. However, if we're not following the Geneva Convention on this basic, stupid, simple thing, then what else are we going to have to accept after that? And it's that lack of compromise that makes sense in this kind of condition. That's a good theory, Liam. I don't know. I I haven't read any of the articles of the Geneva Convention for myself in a long time. They do make you read it at some point when you're in the military, just in case you're ever captured so that you're you know, able to know the basics. It's kind of like the Bill of Rights for Americans. Like you should know the basic points of it. My guess from watching the film and in thinking about it was just that officers have their role and maintaining good order and discipline, especially in this situation, is what is going to keep their men alive. So just as much as you need men working picks, digging dirt and moving it, you need officers to be in charge of them, keeping an eye on their uh, well-being and health, all those other things that come along with that, that middle management you know, is actually needed for, especially in an extreme situation like this. And so to not have his officers get injured from manual labor and be knocked out and sent to the hospital when there's very few of them probably compared to the enlisted men is probably part of that equation. I mean, in the end, the Japanese did not sign on to the Geneva Convention during this time period. And so Sato could very easily slap him in the face with it and say, I don't care, fuck off. Like we're not even signatories to the Geneva Convention. However, it is to be said that the real life Lieutenant Colonel Tuzi also did this as much as possible. Every time he saw the camp guards violating the Geneva Convention by beating a prisoner, by, you know, whatever torture they were doing, all those things, he would go up, confront that Japanese uh, or Korean camp guard directly and say, this is against the Geneva Convention. You can't do that. He would then receive a beating for himself, but he made a point to do that all the time. I think part of it is also assuming he was going to survive and tell this tale later in in like war crimes courts, just the same way that happened at Nuremberg. He wanted as many instances as proof as possible to say, we showed them every single time they violated the Geneva Convention and they did not give a shit and here is how you can charge them, etc. Now, I don't know how that works with a non-signatory, but I'm assuming there's part of that thinking in like an upper echelon officer like that as well. But there is a scene when Nicholson is talking to the doctor when he's in the oven and the doctor's like, we have to do this or people are going to die. And he's like, no, because if we do this, then what's the next thing that we're going to have to give up on? Right. That makes sense. That stubborn mentality in this particular instance. Yes, because it does end up winning him the day. Well, and then losing him the day because of his own weird obsessions. But I was wondering while I was watching it, what you guys were going to say about this. Is his course of action the correct one in this situation? Is it important to hold to your principles or do you 
try to compromise, acquiesce. Saito brings him in and tries to get him to... I have been thinking the matter over and decided to put measures and above uh, administrative duties. I don't compromise. I would have either given in right away because I'm a wimp. <laughs> or I would have held out as long as Alec Guinness did. I don't do the middle ground thing. You gave, you'll give more. Yes. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was the first crack. And that's when, you know, he's like, no, he's going to lose this one. But is the, is the choice to allow the threat of the men in the hospital being forced to go and die for the labor? Because I do, I do want to say that I think Saito like really tries to put off the blame for this. He's like, this is your fault. You're the one choosing by not giving in to me. It's your fault that these men are dying. And that I don't agree with. Like, well, What is that? That's, that's not gaslighting. What is it in a toxic relationship when it's like, look what you made me do to you? Is there a word for that? There is. It's a manipulation, I guess. It's all a type of manipulation, but like this one, that's a specific thing. It's actually an acronym called DARVO, which is deny, attack, reverse victim and defender. This is part of that process of saying, well, you're the one who's doing this to them. It's it just depends on who they're qualifying as the victim. I see that a lot in film. And every time I, I hear it, I'm like, I'm not convinced by your logic here. I'm still not the one who's choosing to do the violent X, Y, Z that you're proposing. Yeah, I mean, clearly both characters are sticking to some set of principles that they have. Mm -hmm. The question and the thing that is kind of not explicitly written out in the film is, is Nicholson's driving principle to have as few a men die as possible? Because if it is, then to me... Any action you take really is justified, whether it's sticking to your guns or whether it's compromising. I think that if your goal is in three years or whenever the war is over, you want to be able to look back and say, you know what, X number of my men died, but I saved as many as possible, then it doesn't really matter. You know, if it's just a matter of stiff upper lip, this is the Geneva Convention and I'm a British officer, blah, 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 then that is something I can A, get behind less and B, is less inspiring and, and, you know, more straightforward. And I just, I think there's a little more to this film and its characters than that. That's my opinion. I think that's why he won the Oscar for it, because it is so difficult to nail down what his motivations are from moment to moment. The ambiguity. I agree. That is, that's what I was thinking. He's like playing all of those intentions in many disparate directions. And he's playing them all as hard as he can. It's really interesting to watch. It's a great performance. To the detriment of his relationship with David Lean, for sure. Who was it that Lean wanted to cast instead of Guinness? Uh, at least two other people. Alec Guinness was choice number three. And it wasn't Lean's choice number three. It was somebody else's choice number three that was forced on Lean. Probably Spiegel. Yeah, Sam Spiegel is a producer who... Had opinions, with a capital O. Yeah, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think you, you got to overrule him very often but they figured it out and then they made lawrence of arabia together so there's that right <laughs> he's in a lot of david lean movies they figured out their differences charles lawton oh shit i mean that would have been good but he was a very very different actor than guinness and also exceedingly fat 
That was one of the issues is they did not think that he would be able to lose enough weight to be convincing as a POW versus Alec Guinness being already a smaller framed actor would have been easier to work with. Yeah, he's uh, like, I love Charles Lawton, but Charles Lawton in this era was old and spent most of his career being very big. Mm -hmm. Charles Lawton was announced as the star, but decided he couldn't handle the heat of Ceylon and withdrew. Among the actors considered as replacements were Ronald Coleman, Noel Coward, Sir Ralph Richardson, Ray Milland, James Mason, and Sir Anthony Quayle. Oh man, Ronald Coleman would have been really good. Mm-hmm. Not Alec Guinness good, but it is one of those times when you like, yeah, I could kind of see that. Mm-hmm. For, for an actor of his period, he can bring some remarkable understatement to a performance. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, the genius of Alec Guinness's performance is shown in the fact that by the end of the film, where you're kind of questioning his sanity because he's trying to figure out what's happening with the bridge and sabotage, etc. Oh, the bridge. Who's trying to blow up my bridge? And you're like, did Alec Guinness go crazy filming this movie? Or is this just the character? Like, you know what I mean? It's so convincing a performance that it's hard to parse out what is actually happening. And if he's actually insane, I mean, I guess not the actor, but just the character. Like, yeah, it's, it's pretty exceptional. Yeah. And I read the New York times review at the time this was released and a couple of other reviews, of course, and there was confusion about whether or not it's purposeful that, Nicholson falls on the plunger at the end or not, like whether or not he intends it or whether Mm. he doesn't like at the time it was considered ambiguous, whereas now it is not considered ambiguous from the more current reviews and retrospectives that I read about this. Interesting. I still think it's pretty goddamn ambiguous. I think he would have pressed the plunger on purpose had he got there, but I don't think that he meant to press it by falling on it. You know what I mean? By dying on it. Yeah. yeah I mean, not not yeah. to skip ahead, but we have. Yeah, I, I'm on board with Liam. I, I, I think that's exactly what's happening. But that's also that ambiguity is reinforced by the editing and the way the shots are done. Mm-hmm. I think if you were seeing a more sort of three quarter bird's eye view of that beach or that little section of beach with Alec Guinness and you could kind of see the geography around him where he stumbled what he was looking at etc and they shot that all in one shot I think it could be less ambiguous as to whether it was an accident that he fell on it or not but the choice to cut there and show it from a totally different angle whether that was the intention or not probably was I think leaves the ambiguity there yeah I think it's intentional very intentional especially based on where they position the camera. The ambiguity is intentional, not him falling on it. Yes. The ambiguity of the film is intentional. Correct. Because how they place the camera is very disorienting for the audience. And that's the biggest clue in my mind, because it goes from being a fairly straight on shot of him saying the line. And then I think he turns around and the mortar round goes off next to him. And then all of a sudden the camera is in a completely different spot and he's turning around all like, yeah, looking like something out of reanimator. Got some shrapnel in the head, I think. Yeah. And it's hard to know, like, where is he injured? Like, what's going on? And there's a lot of ambiguity about that, too. It's not like he has an obvious bullet wound. His head. No, but I think he has some blood in his hair. Mm-hmm. And on his yes. scalp that made me think that he took a shard to the head. Yep. Or something, you know, obviously something happened. And then it takes another shift 
between when he is stumbling and when and then it goes straight on to the plunger itself and you see his body come down on top of it so there's several steps and moments that you are missing in that so i think that choice reinforces that ambiguity of like is he aware of what's going on right now what would he have meant to do and so on and so forth so we talked a little bit about shears and the possibility that he is an allegorical representation for america in world war ii right i think the same can be said for all of our three main players Agreed. I think the reason why it's tough to tell how crazy Nicholson is, is because he is embodying the entire mentality of colonial imperial Britain. And you're like, are you guys bonkers? Like when they say it, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. But also the shit that you're doing is absolutely insane. Why do you think that that's okay to do? Madness. Madness. And all of that is wrapped up in his philosophy and his worldview. And it's tough to parse what is insanity and what is a twisted kind of logic. And I think the same goes true for Saito as well. Mm -hmm. From what they is portrayed of the Japanese, both the military mindset, the emperor himself, and the people of Japan at the time despite being portrayed as as one monolith we're not that way and he kind of embodies all three of those aspects of the japanese system of like this high-minded idealism where you should feel shame for surrendering and all of that and i love the pinup calendar that he's got <laughs> yes that's not one you normally see in a japanese officer's depiction in a world war ii movie of this period right it's from ohio like how did that get there i kept thinking that but saito seems he's just this bundle of contradictions and you know he's talking about the bushido code in one scene and then going to london polytechnic in the next you know there's so much going on with all three of those characters that feels like more than just one actual individual would be. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. It does make me want to read more about Japanese military culture at the time because I've read a lot about the end result of what the Japanese did, atrocities towards civilians in the Philippines and the... China. Yeah, in China, Manchuria, the massacres that happened there. And, you know... I don't know the Bushido code very well, but you would think that what comes along with pride in soldiering and never surrendering and all these things that the Japanese are associated with, you would think that torture and mistreatment of prisoners could just as easily be outlawed by that code instead of being embraced by the Japanese the way that it was during the war. So that's like, to me, a little surprising. But again, I'd have to read up a little bit more about it. Well, and also when you when you take a I hate to just throw this label around, but like a a fascistic society that like when it something morphs into a nationalist fascist sort of state that infects everything. A lot of your founding ideals get debauched in that process. Yeah. So it wouldn't really surprise me because I know I know very, very little about Bushido, but it wouldn't surprise me 
if it did address that in some way that was like, oh, no, don't torture your prisoners. But somewhere in there, it also says the surrendering is shame. And yeah, once someone surrendered there not to be treated like a human. I mean, I don't, I don't yeah, I mean, or, or just like for yourself, surrendering is shame. So right. when you see that in others, you treat them with the same derision that you would treat your. Oh, well, I would kill myself before surrendering right you should already be dead so you should have killed yourself as well Mm -hmm. and so there is punishment for not doing the thing you were supposed to do and everything gets heightened when you're in that kind of nationalist situation Mm -hmm. in the same way that it was in germany where aryan blood and all the goddamn nonsense that they perpetuated just on that kind of like this is how a man should behave and this is how what the ideal human is and all that stuff like japan certainly had their own version of that in that time frame and i think it just becomes completely distorted to the most toxic version of that culture when you are in a fascist environment i would be willing to bet the same happens in most extreme fascist environments so i i ran into I was just doing research on YouTube and looking up making of stuff. And I think we can switch to cinematography here and just filmmaking and talk a little bit about David Lean's sort of attitude towards filmmaking. Cause you see the end result of it, but it's nice to hear it from the horse's mouth, uh, which you'll now hear from my mouth. <laughs> but uh, this is from an interview between uh, with Charles Reynolds interviewing David Lean. I'm not sure if this is written or audio. I'll try and look it up. And if I find a clip, I will put it in here for you guys. So these are four points on his epic style. Number one, make sure to use enough of each shot. Make it as wide as possible. Put as much information on the screen as you possibly can. And then he says that as he's doing that, he thinks to himself, what is the audience supposed to see? This dog walking across the road, the prisoners walking across the berm while Shears is burying a body in the foreground. Like you're thinking about all of the elements in the scene and what you're trying to illustrate. Each shot must be held long enough to tell its story and then make room for the rest. Two, Liam will love this one. Avoid unmotivated camera moves. Boom. My guy. Cuts are better than pans. And he expounds on this by saying, he's not saying that pans are bad overall, but he's just saying, anytime you're making a pan, a little red flag should go up and you should ask yourself, is there a way to show this transition or this part of the story by cutting a few different scenes together? If the answer is yes, then do it that way. Now, I think that's a very subjective point that we could argue different directors do differently, but that was David Lean's opinion. Three, Give depth to the shots. Include foreground and background elements. So you see this a lot when it's, you can tell that the principal point of the shot is to show Alec Guinness leaning over the side of the bridge, but it's like one of the stanchions of the bridge is visible in the foreground and you can see the river and the trees in the background. And again, I described the POWs earlier. There's lots of different moments like that. And then lastly, each shot needs to make sense and flow in its sequence of shots most of the time it's not a standalone thing it's part of a series of shots that work together so i I thought it was interesting to look at the film from that perspective and to think about how he kind of worked that in but what did you guys think of the filmmaking cinematography well i loved all of that Um, (laughs) (laughs) who wouldn't love all of that well you know and it's 
I appreciate it when a filmmaker or a cinematographer has a, and they don't even necessarily have to articulate it to me, but you can oftentimes tell when you're looking at something that somebody put a lot of thought into that shot. And in a David Lean movie, that's pretty much every shot. Like there isn't anything that really happens by accident. He's not a run and gun, like let's see what happens kind of filmmaker. You know what I mean? Everything is done very, very intentionally. Yeah, he he allows room for improvisation, but personally for his own stuff, he's not a f- big fan of improvisation. He's a planner. Yeah, exactly. Lots of storyboards, I would guess. Oh, man, so many storyboards. There have to be. Hopefully he got Jack Kirby to draw some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Call back. I don't know if there's one shot in particular. Probably my favorite scene is the scene with Saito and... Nicholson on the bridge where he drops the cane in the water. Yes. And it's the writing. It's the acting. It's the lighting. It's just the, the, the entire mise-en-scene of that scene is just fabulous. Yeah. That has to be my favorite. It's interesting though. I'd been meaning to pick this movie up on 4k for a long time. So I use this as a perfectly good excuse to do so. I remember that scene being a whole lot darker on VHS. This is one of those things that on VHS, I remember that scene taking place almost in moonlight. Like it was darker in my memory than it was in 4K. And I wonder if it's kind of like the seven effect where like when they upgraded it to DVD and Blu-ray and things like that, like everything in the movie seven just looks brighter now and it doesn't have that fucking dirty ass VHS look anymore. But in this, I kind of liked it. I thought it had a nice like golden hour kind of glow to that whole sequence i also thought it dulled the effects of the day for night that they do when they are in the scenes there's a lot of day for night in this movie yeah (laughs) and some climactic key points too yeah it was my least favorite part of the film in particular the scenes where they're getting set up with the raft and going down river Mm -hmm. i was shocked at how good that looks Because as an avid bad movie watcher, let me tell you, people still use day for night way more often than they ever, ever, ever should. So I've seen a lot of crappy versions of it. I was like, this is actually pretty good. I would believe this is strong moonlight Mm -hmm. is how well they pull it off in this. Well, and in old black and white movies like day for night, you just kind of have to suspend your disbelief and just say, oh, that's some really bright moonlight. Yeah, like that's just because that's what most of them did. You know, there are times it's really difficult to to tell what time it is. And so that's why in an old 1940s movie, you'll have a scene like that. And the first line of dialogue will be like, oh, God, what time is it? (laughs) It's 3 a.m. What are you doing here? Exactly. No, it's like if you ever watch uh, the Philadelphia story, fucking so many scenes in that movie where people are like, what time is it? Oh, it's after 12. Wow. So, so it didn't bother me that much, but it was some pretty, it wasn't like Mad Max Fury Road level where it's like they're still squinting because it's actually sunlight out and they just put a blue filter over it. But it's, it's up there. Well, that wasn't supposed to be night. That was just supposed to be cloudy. No, I think that was supposed to be night at that point. <laughs> I mean, one of the weird things to me, and for whatever reason, it did stick out to me in this film more than another. Is like Lawrence of Arabia, which was only made, you know, four years later. I thought the day for night scenes in the desert worked a lot better. It's probably because there's a lot less going on in the desert. It's really hard with clouds and the jungle and all the color that comes out of that. You can filter it however you want. And lots of movement. Yeah, but in reality, 
us humans in low light environments, we actually don't see color. So it actually makes more sense in a black and white film to film day for night because it's all in black and white anyways. And yeah, I get that there are chromatic differences in that black, possibly with the different lighting. But in this, I think a lot of it is the color that comes out is even in moonlight. I don't think you would see that much color in the jungle. I think that the filmmaking, which, of course, Lean was not on his own in making the stylistic choices in this film. The cinematography by Jack Hilliard, the film editing by Peter Taylor are so integral to making all of this work. It's obvious that David Lean had a very specific vision for how he wanted this film to come out. And hearing those notes about it is kind of reassuring because this movie feels like something where every choice is purposeful. I will say that for every David Lean movie I've ever seen. It's every choice matters and they are all considered and thought through. Maybe not to the level of like Stanley Kubrick turning the cans in the pantry scene in The Shining <laughs> thought through. But I would say that's probably a good thing. On, naming his palm trees uh, just outside London. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a good thing on David Lean's part. <laughs> This one feels so kind of perfectly choreographed between director, cinematographer, editor, and and this the script. Because it all flows so well. One of my criticisms of this movie, which we really haven't had too many of, um, I feel like David Lean is really a little too invested sometimes in his traveling scenes and in giving a lot of uh, background because I can see the purpose of those scenes from a mile away. The most egregious ones, I think, in this film are when Shears and co. are traveling from where they're having the Mai Tais. Where that, where that base is. Yeah, yeah. So they're travel when they're traveling from there through the jungle, there's a good three, four minutes of them like beating through various kinds of brush and looking exasperated and frustrated and just pulling faces. And I'm like, I get what you're doing here, man, but this is at a certain point, it begins to feel masturbatory. And that's just how it felt to me. Or like the scene with Jack Hawkins when he's been shot in the foot, right? Oh God. And, right. and you see him there struggling with his non-girlfriend but then up on the ridge, you see everybody else is walking on the ridge. And it's a beautiful shot. It is. It's, it's a great shot. And I love it. However, the it cuts from there to them taking a break in a clearing. And they come into the clearing. And then 30 seconds later, he strolls into the clearing. And I'm like, motherfucker, you were at the bottom of the mountain. They were at the top. You threw your boot away. Like, what? How did you get there that fast? Yeah, it plays fast and loose and with those scenes, I think, as we get closer to the end. It's what we call verisimilitude, or a lack thereof. There we go. Yeah, if, if there's a place that had some fat that could have been trimmed, it's definitely in the traveling scenes. I agree with Katie. Also, speaking of masturbatory, there's a lot of unnecessary male gaze slash sexy porter, you know, oh moments of holding hands and staring at each other. And I'm like, okay. I can lovely. I could. Yeah. That lovely scene. I'm like, I can justify a lot of this in the fact that a lot of these 
real characters or the you know the real people like a lot of soldiers in the middle of the jungle in the early 40s would have certainly been flirting with their super cute young female porters but it's like they should have just left it at that and not make it feel like it's somewhat reciprocal in some of those scenes because i'm like I don't, and each one gets their own who gets them more in them yeah and i'm like i don't think these girls would have wanted to have anything to do with you <laughs> unless you're paying them or something i don't know uh, i don't know it's it's bill holden all right and they have to have a certain amount of exoticism about them as white dudes in the jungle right like they're the exotic ones now. and jeffrey horn is uh my understanding is that it is not typically reversed <laughs> In in Asian culture, Asian cultures don't typically view, from my understanding, again, white folks is exotic. They view us as well, weird. All of the Sean Connery, James Bond movies have convinced me otherwise. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. That was the most frustrating part of the movie for me. Feminism does not exist in this world. No, David Lean does not include that in his movies generally. You know, it's it's something that, you know, I was watching this movie and I had this weird thought that I was like, if this is an accurate depiction of the societal dynamics of the world war two era, all men are exclusively looking to bone and all women are exclusively looking to be boned. No, no. All women are exclusively looking for a man to care for. Uh, I don't know. Like that nurse was looking to be boned. Yes. But the, well, no, cause he talks about how she's willing to give him all of these. She's willing to care for him in all these ways, but she won't kiss him on the beach in public. I'm glad you brought the nurse character up because apparently <laughs> hello nurse. The whole reason the nurse character was introduced played by Ann Sears was that the studio felt that this movie had to have a white woman as like a love story thing. Now, I don't know if that's in response to too many brown girls having lovey eyes with the characters or if it's just in general, they're like, there isn't a white girl to be the love interest here. We have to add one. I, I, I didn't specify, but that, that entire character was the studios doing it felt very shoehorned in and i think i will give this credit is that those as they are called in in imdb siamese girl that is their character name that's how they're credited in the credits yeah all four of them they all give like the little bits we get to see of them they give good performances like they give you know the sexy bedroom eyes and there are those few moments, especially near the end, where Joyce and Shears are leaving them and they have these facial expressions that really feel genuine. And whether or not that's accurate, which I would guess probably not, it does speak to those women's skills at portraying the kind of role that David Lean was wanting from them. And they all looked with stern consternation at Jack Hawkins at the end when he blew up their boyfriends. Yeah. Yes, they did. The one other thing I really did want to mention about this that I found weird and very noticeable is how this is so obviously not filmed in Thailand because everybody who's in, I mean, because this was filmed in what's now called Sri Lanka, then called Ceylon, and the folks there have a very different complexion than Thai folks. So it was very jarring how they had like the the four Siamese girls are obviously supposed to be portrayed. They have a more traditional Thai looking. Yeah, guessing from their last name, I would guess that they're either Thai or Indonesian. That's what I thought, too. I was like, oh, that's interesting that they're choosing to make this distinction. 
they didn't go that route, you know? It's not quite Black Hawk Down. Like, they did put some effort into either making people look right geographically or for their ethnicity, or when they couldn't. For example, the British soldiers in the first scene where they line up in the platoon, or, or I guess in the battalion, the first two rows are British actors, and the last three rows are Sri Lankan extras in whiteface, basically, because like that's yes. those are the bodies that they had, and so they. So, I noticed a lot of that. Yeah, so you know they were trying, they were trying, and and there is that interesting moment where Nicholson goes into uh, when he's trying to recruit soldiers from the from the ill, and he bows to what I am guessing are supposed to be Indian soldiers. Mm-hmm. There are some brief mentions of colonial forces right. brought in. Well, and he spent most of his time in India, too, if you are to gather from the things that he says. I love India. A brief point before we move on. From what he says, he would have been enlisted... 28 years. Pre-World War One at that point, right? Yeah, since like 1940. He would have signed up for World War One, basically. But yeah, been in the British Army forever. He's on his second World War. And since then, he's only spent 10 months total back in England. So, Dan, tell me about your favorite scene. Well, in a complete non sequitur, I was going to mention one of the action scenes, but not necessarily for the action itself. It's the scene where they are hanging out at the river and they are surprised by a few Japanese soldiers. And the soldiers are you know, assaulting or trying to grab or whatever, a couple of the porters and the rest of the British soldiers are up on the higher part of the river and they haven't been seen yet. And so they grab their Sten guns and sneak up and then Warden throws a grenade and that commences the assault where they kill all the Japanese down there. And they had a bunch of flying foxes, those fruit bats that are all over Southeast Asia, just explode mm-hmm. out of the jungle at the noise. And those giant bats are in the rest of the scenes for the next, like, three minutes as this huge swarm of bats. Yeah. Flock of bats? Swarm of bats? I don't even know. Are flying around. And it's so cool just because you're thinking about it and you're like, okay, None of this is CGI. They couldn't. It doesn't seem obvious to me that they animated like extra bats in the background or extra shadows to make you'd be able to tell. Yeah. yeah, To make it look like more of them. Right. So they all look natural. There's hundreds of them and you can see their shadows in the progressing scenes again for the next couple of minutes. And I just I was thinking about the practicality of that. I'm like, okay. Maybe there's a cave nearby where they roost. Like Jackie was telling me a little bit about the bats, but then maybe they were just roosting in trees. But the point being, once you start that progression, then what? Are you like, okay, now we have to shoot all these scenes right now because the bats are flying around? Or did you just do 75 takes to get the bats just right to do several (laughs) different scenes? Like, did you bring the bats in? Did you find a place that already had bats? Were the bats always fucking up your shots? So you were just like, oh, we'll just include them. And most of them are during the day. Right. So that feels like it also would have taken a lot of effort. But I, I thought the same thing with all the bats. Because as I was watching, I was like, David Lean must have been really interested in these bats. Because it's not just those scenes. There's also a couple scenes of just the bats like flying in and landing on stuff. and Or just shown perching on things. I was like... I don't know why we're looking at these bats so much, my dude. I mean, the the one thing as a filmmaker that I think is nice is their size, because from a long distance, it's extremely clear that they are indeed bats, as opposed to using much smaller bats. It would take a lot of them, or, you know, it might be ambiguous. You're like, are they birds? Are they bats? Because they're like 
three or four feet long. They're huge. Yeah, they're gigantic. I thought that was brilliantly done. And I kept thinking about the practical repercussions behind that and thinking like how much the crew must have hated this decision to do all these shots with the bats. That was probably part of what won at the Oscar, honestly. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of shot that you didn't normally get in movies like this in the 50s and it still holds up today because it's obviously a shot of actual giant bats swarming yeah and that was one of the things i think that has been said about lean before is he insisted so much on on location shooting that his films age really well because anything else would have been done it's like a couple of outdoor locations and then sound stages and and it's like that stuff just doesn't hold up it probably wouldn't hold up if you even if you did it today not as well as shooting the real thing. And as we've talked about before with practical effects, with all kinds of things like that, the more often you can just shoot the actual thing that you're trying to put on screen. In camera is better. Mm-hmm. So I had this moment watching the film where I was like, what the fuck? Did everything just go insane? Which is when Shears is uh, finding his way into uh, the village and he's wandering around and they've heard the, the cry of the vultures. And then there's this brief, there's this brief flash. Oh, right. So obviously a kite, but it's, um, it's played in the film. Like, oh, this is a real vulture. And he's reacting that way. And I was like, David Lean (laughs) wouldn't do this to us, right? Like he wouldn't actually try to pretend that kite is the vulture. And it's such a great, uh, like fake out because I also afterwards was like, where did they get this kite? What the hell? Where did they get crepe paper? <laughs> Everything had been so uh, very straight laced. And that played like such a comedic beat. that I was like, you got to be kidding me here. Yeah, that was weird. But I think the entire point was to just show you that Shear's brain has been cooked and he's like losing it. And I appreciated the the use of the joke. It's not often that directors of that era making these kind of big epic films can find those little moments of comedy i rewound it three times that first (laughs) clip was like wait what did i just see oh that was i think my favorite scene in the movie can we talk about the score for a minute because it's iconic and it's oscar winning here's my question do you think that the uh whistling is what won it yes Okay. I think it was an earworm that people couldn't get rid of. I still can't get rid of it. I agree. That being said, two things occurred to me. One is this has a very similar sort of ending music to A Bridge Too Far, where it's horrible, depressing, desolate, and then it comes in with the cheerful music. And I was curious as to if you hated it this time, like you hated it in A Bridge Too Far, Katie. Or do you think that if they were trying to do the same thing, did this one just stick the landing better than that one? I was less irritated with it. My immediate reaction to it was less irritation. I think it felt more purposeful. It pulls it off better because it had had those other previous moments that just didn't it didn't work for me in the in a bridge too far. Yeah, I mean, should be said in the background that this score was produced from beginning to end in less than a month because the deadline to get it in for the Oscars was December 31st. And at the beginning of December, (laughs) they did not have a score yet. So Jesus, Sir Malcolm Arnold, who composed the score, did it in 10 days. And I think that was part of why he got the Oscar is just how fast he put together a very good at minimum decent score for this film he is a a roger corman of scores apparently except roger scorman more like (laughs) (laughs) yes 
And he did build it around that whistle. So that main march that he plays that comes up with the drums, clearly he built it around around the Colonel Bogey march. And I think that's part of what Katie's feeling is where it didn't annoy her as much. And I'm like, yeah, because it has a connection to the real world of the film. It is drawing a bridge, no pun intended, between the whistling and the marching, which has a thematic element to it. And it's supposed to represent the bravery and the standing up to adversity of the British troops. And then he kind of builds the score from that. So I I think that's the thing that really works for me is how it really connects you to the film. The absurdity level of how it comes in and how it goes out Mm -hmm. is how it worked a little better for me. A bridge too far was trying to do the same thing, but it just didn't land quite as cleanly. It didn't have the setup. You got to have the setup, man. If you don't, honestly, that is most often my biggest issue with a film is that it does not set up for its payoff. The thing that I didn't like about the score mm-hmm. is the very opening of the movie. You know, as you described, it opens up with men working and dying on a railroad. Mm-hmm. The music in that short segment is so fucking ridiculous over the top garbage it feels inappropriate for what it's showing on screen not even inappropriate it's offensively too appropriate it's basically like look at them look at them dying and it's like if you'd say that with music it's the musical version of being strapped into the clockwork orange machine and it's just like look at them like it is like prying your eyelids open only with your ears I honestly kind of laughed. Because it made you uncomfortable? No, because it was kind of ridiculous because it was so over the top. That portion of it felt like an early 40s kind of musical score in a movie that is late 50s. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And in the 40s, it worked because it was the style at the time. But here it really, really clanged for me. I don't want to let us leave this discussion without... At least talking a little bit about my guy, Jack Hawkins. Love that guy. He is kind of the Bernard Hill of the late 50s, early 60s. You think about like there was that stretch of time, like from the late 90s into the early 2000s, where it was like every movie that was the new biggest grossing film of all time and probably also won Best Picture also had Bernard Hill in it. He was in Titanic. He was in Lord of the Rings. There was a few other ones. Played Theoden in Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. You'd see that guy in everything. And it's like, if that guy's in your movie, that movie's breaking records. Jack Hawkins was kind of the same way because he was in this, which won Best Picture. He was in Lawrence of Arabia, which won Best Picture. He was in Ben-Hur, which is what I know him best from. He plays the the Consul Quintus Arius, who is Charlton Heston's adopted father in that movie spoiler alert if you haven't seen it and that's like the quintessential blockbuster oscar winning thing 111 oscars but yeah i thought he was fabulous in this what did you guys think of him i'm only really familiar with him ben hurst has been too long for me to reference that movie i'm gonna have to think about it when i see it again but lawrence of arabia he's great in that and has a lot of one-on-one interaction with peter o'toole in several scenes especially when he gets to damascus so that's what i knew him from and yeah he's a very very good balance i think of sort of 
a little bit of that dramatic what can look like overacting to modernize in certain scenes but i could give him a pass on that not only because he was an actor from a long time ago but also because the subtlety in his facial expressions when he's just having a conversation and doing that like real small work is phenomenal i really like the way he carries himself and the way he's especially good at dialogue to be perfectly honest he is i didn't quite buy him as much as the guy that stabs the japanese soldier in the heart you know i mean he did fine Mm -hmm. but it's like that's not really what i think he's best at i think he's best at sitting in a chair across from someone and doing these like subtle takes and subtle facial expressions in a conversation he's got the dossier open your cnc pacific sent us a copy of your service record and photograph fingerprints everything would you uh, care to have a look you see we've known about your um actual rank for nearly a week and he knows everything that is just waiting for just waiting for william holden to like stumble into his trap but also he's like oh you've fallen into my trap i have a seat here for you it's a very comfortable chair i think you would like it <laughs> like that's his whole thing it's like it seems machiavellian except so nice and cozy and he's gonna pour you some tea yeah he's good at that yeah, I, I really think he gives a great performance. I hadn't seen him in too many other things, but he's got such a expressive face. It makes it, he's just a pleasure to watch act, I, honestly, because he, he doesn't necessarily telegraph it, but he's just so good at giving his line readings and does them in a way that's just a little different. It's fascinating. I was, I was reading about him and because it's really sad to me, but it is also fascinating that his vocal performances are so good, but he got throat cancer and had his larynx removed Oh God! towards the end of his career and kept acting. Wow. And he would just mouth his lines and they would record somebody else saying them. Whoa. He did like his last three movies like that, which is bonkers to me because his voice is so distinctive. It's like, it is. If that happened to Mark strong today, you'd notice. Right. What happens when you're nominated for an award? Do you have to like both go take it? Like the person who dubbed you and you or? I think at no. that point he wasn't really getting any award nominations uh, at this stage enough. of his career. But yeah, no, that would have been uh that's a good question. I don't know what the Academy's ruling on that would have been. I would assume that it would just be you. I think it would have just been you. They don't tend to give awards to voiceover artists. That's why James Earl Jones didn't win for Darth Vader. Yeah. Right. So... We finally get to the very climactic buildup of this film, which again, doesn't happen in the novel, nor did it happen in real life, of the commandos being successful and blowing up this bridge. Not only that, but waiting for the train to come onto it and then blowing up the bridge and the train. For me, I think one of the craziest parts of this was just doing the research and seeing that they spent... Obviously, the conditions were way different than real life. But in terms of the time and money they put into building this wooden bridge, it wasn't that different from what it must have taken in real life in the sense that it took, uh, I think, over eight months, a crew of, you know, 500 people and elephants and all this stuff. That's right. And they built the wooden one probably in the way the original wooden one was built, like the little cargo bridge that they had built in terms of, you know, the pile hammering down the pylons and doing all the work by hand because the location was very remote in Ceylon or Sri Lanka. And so they couldn't get a bunch of big machinery. So this was really a bridge they basically built by hand. Well, and also because they had to build, I assume they had to build it 
during production because there are many scenes when the bridge is not completed. So you can't just have this bridge hanging out there. That's a good point. In today's money, it took them about a million dollars to build that bridge. And I don't know if this is right, but it says it costs in today's dollars, 2.6 million to blow it up because they used a thousand pounds of dynamite and had to blow up an actual real train and dump it into the river. Yeah, so no, that tracks. That makes sense. Super expensive and crazy that they went through all that trouble. And it's almost like if you were ever bored at any of the untrimmed travel scenes or the scenes we were talking about where you're like, okay, this is going on a bit too long, whatever. I think the payoff is huge at the end, both in the drama of the acting of what's happening and in the actual blowing up of the bridge. What did you guys think? Oh, no, that that bridge blown up is so good. So satisfying to see. Classic. Besides the whole watching, waiting for the movie when you're hoping that the bridge isn't going to make it, you have those last few minutes of just intense suspense Mm -hmm. about whether or not it's going to happen. I think it was very well pulled off. I mean, it's worth it. The movie is (laughs) one of the best films, you know. They don't blow it up in the book? No, I don't think so. Man, what a bummer. Yeah. All that effort. This bridge in real life was bombed by the Allies a couple of times. Uh, It ran, I think, for a year and a half until it was finally put out of commission by a B-25. They didn't destroy the bridge. It was eventually fixed up and it continues to be run to this day. Also, it was less of an impact in the war than the Allies thought it was going to have because it still allowed supplies to run to that point from both sides. And then I think maybe they had other ways of getting them around the river. They had to put them on rafts. Like clearly it was a problem that the bridge wasn't continuous, but it didn't have as much of an impact as the allies would have thought. I I really liked the like Chekhov's gun sort of, or, or Chekhov's detonating wire where they keep having scenes where you like see the wire and then the water drops, the water level drops and you're like, Oh man, back to sort of, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson's motivation and state of mind, this is the extreme point in the movie, right? Where it's like you see him looking and you see him getting suspicious and you're like, oh, he's going to see what's going on and he's going to like distract the Japanese commander so that the commandos can do their job and blow up the bridge. And then he tries to blow the whole thing, like blow the lid off the whole thing. And I was like, what the hell is happening? It like really doesn't occur to him that that bridge getting built wasn't his job. Yeah, he's so delusional. It never, never occurs to him who might be trying to blow up this bridge. It's almost just like these damn juvenile delinquents are out here trying to blow up my bridge. Right. It's such a weird, like, indignant reaction. It's like, who's, who on earth would look at this wire? Like, it's so bonkers. It is. And he gives this, like, insane performance. You can see it on his face from that first moment where he starts uh, suspecting. It's just like, oh, my God. Oh, oh, And he immediately goes running to Saito like he's his commanding officer. And it's just like, oh. Colonel, there's something rather odd going on. I think we better have another look around before that train comes across. It's like he's clutching his pearls. Yeah. At the idea that somebody would try to blow up this bridge moral degenerates these people that's the point where you really it hits home just how far he's gone right well it's like he's forgotten that there's an entire world war going on like he's forgotten the whole big picture of what's happening and i mean it drives all the other characters to such a point 
that this is how Shears actually ends up getting killed. The guy, and you know, I think there's probably a little bit of a moral lesson here because he was the guy who was shirking responsibility the whole time and cheating his way through the system and just trying to drink martinis. He's the guy who swims across the river and is going to go kill Nicholson so that they can accomplish their mission and then gets killed doing that. So in the end, you know, it kind of shows his bravery in a sense. Yeah, I mean, that character goes through an interesting arc throughout the film and we have that scene mm-hmm. in the middle when they're traveling and a warden has you know hurt his ankle and he's talking about this is just a game this war you and that colonel nicholson you're two of a kind crazy with courage for what how to die like a gentleman how to die by the rules when the only important thing is how to live like a human being it was an interesting conclusion to his character's arc. It is. It's a it it ties his arc up nicely. I mean, yeah, the whole thing, the climax, the suspense, the deaths that happen at the end, and the train going into the river are all a fitting climax and a fitting conclusion to this film. Mm-hmm. Speaking of vultures, though, I don't understand why, as the kind of helicopter shot is pulling away from the river and you have the madness line, they then cut to a shot of two vultures flying around and then the film cuts i was like okay that was super weird did you guys notice that i did i didn't really get that i I didn't either i don't know man felt very sudden i noticed it a little bit but i was probably still just rolling my eyes at the madness madness line because i actually (laughs) do hate that ending madness madness Oh, it's so badly delivered. I do hate it. It's just um, too over the top. Yeah, way too. It's very 1950s. Mm-hmm. It's not in keeping with that character at all right. that we've seen. Yeah, and, and he is he is almost as jaded as Shears is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I feel like he would not really be as flummoxed by what he just witnessed. Exactly. It feels like he would be more um, stoic. Resigned. You know, like a little... Of course, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, like sit down, head in hands, and maybe weep over it. But you're not surprised. I mean, I think maybe the point was that after 14 months of being indoctrinated by Nicholson on why it's important that they build this bridge and why it's the best thing for the British Army, etc., to watch him then blow up the bridge they spent all this time dying and building. Right, but he knew that was crazy anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in our show when we ask our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, why don't you start us off? I think Lean had a wide objective in making this movie, which isn't necessarily true of all the movies that we cover. I think this one is probably more along the uh, Coppola line than, say, Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. I think Lean is trying to examine what war does to humanity, how humans try to survive in the worst circumstances, how we can delude ourselves into thinking we are making the right choices when we are blatantly making the wrong ones. And I think that goes for all three of our big main characters, both in their in how they view themselves and in how the audience is supposed to view them. I think all three of them kind of go back and forth in their own judgment and how we're supposed to judge them. And I think Lean wanted to make something that would captivate people and make them ask questions about 
the wider purposes and reasons for war rather than, you know, the specifics of what was actually going on in that place and time. Because as we've said, that part of it is not in any way accurate. (laughs) Was it on target? Yeah, I think so. I think this is a really nuanced war film in a way that we haven't talked about a whole lot yet in that it's not necessarily trying to be an anti-war film. It's more interested in examining motivations and the consequences for the people who participate in the war when they are driven to these extreme lengths. So I think Lean did a good job, which I mean, who am I to say David Lean doesn't do a good job, honestly. You're a resident film critic. That's who. God damn it. You're Katie Schaefer, <laughs> founding member of uh, Danger Close, the podcast. Just say whatever you want. Spout off. <laughs> Not on this one, anyway. <laughs> I liked this movie. This was the first time I'd sat down and watched it from, like, beginning to end. Like, I'd watched bits and pieces here, you know, like an hour here or there, especially in high school as my dad was watching it. But One of the reasons I really like it is not necessarily for its war movie aspects. It's that it seems such a harbinger of what was to come in cinema from the style that he has to the kinds of questions the film is asking to the performances that everyone gives. This is kind of a brief glimpse of what we end up getting with the late 60s, early 70s wave. The new Hollywood. And I... Love that. Love that for David Lean. I think it's just fascinating to see that kind of thing, because that was not what I expected in this. So I I liked it. And I think even more than I liked it necessarily, I really respected it as a film of like, oh, you're really trying to go for the stars with this one. And you did a pretty damn good job. So, yeah, it's a good movie. Nice. Dan, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I think. The objective here was to adapt this novel into an entertaining but fictional story. I don't know if there was a second part to the objective of giving these POWs and the people who experienced the real story something to watch that would represent some of their experience. I don't know that for sure. But I will say that just like Katie compared this to the Battle of Longtan, I think this is the way to do it. If you want to bend the facts and make certain characters do what you want them to do for drama or to drive home a bigger point or whatever, then you make the story fictional. It gives you so much more leeway to do it the way that you want to do it. You can take a bridge that didn't get blown up in real life and blow it up because it works really well for the suspense and the drama. And you can create dramatic tension between characters that maybe didn't exist in their real life counterparts or it was just different and i think that's a really smart move again we criticize the hell out of long tan for doing the opposite of that and trying to make it all based on real events so i appreciated that on the other end of it if the goal at all was to satisfy the pow's who went through this experience i can tell you from watching a lot of their interviews that they were not. Uh, Most of them reacted with, yeah, this is all fictional. None of this happened like this. And they lost a lot of people. So I I think to them, especially some of the older guys at this point in this interview, they were in their 80s. One of the comments was, you know, I really hope that before I die, someone does tell this story in a way that relays what we actually went through. And so I think as much as we're talking about that generation of 
veterans who didn't talk a lot about stuff and don't necessarily want to air out all the horrors of war. Um, it sounded to me like these POWs would like to see a film that would be more along the lines of Schindler's List, to be honest. I mean, in terms of how it depicts the dying and the conditions in the camps, it would be a really depressing and brutal film to watch. But I think they do still want their story told. So I'm going to leave that to the side because I'm really not sure about where David Lean's motivations were on that one. So was it on target for that first part? Definitely. I think once you add the jungle and logistical complications, extras, elephants to build a bridge, you know, budget (laughs) constraints as usual, like it's amazing that films like this even got made in the first place, let alone successfully. Another thing David Lean says in his interviews, uh, I may have mentioned it earlier, is that, yeah, like exact stories to real life can be sometimes boring. Sometimes they don't have the right level of drama, whatever. What he said is there should be a little bit of a dreamlike state to a film a little bit, even if it's about war, even if it's based on real events. And I really respect that. I think David Lean really leans into, no pun intended, the medium of film in this case. And really knows what he's doing. And I think like Liam said, you can see it from the result and you can see it from what he said about his filmmaking. Uh, Did I like it? Yeah. You know, this movie has a few pacing issues. There are some parts where I would cut a little bit out and make it a little bit snappier. You know, it's I don't think it ever quite gets to boring because anytime that there's not that much going on, the scenery is gorgeous and you can start to think about what they did for those shots and where they are, etc. So there's always something to look at, even if it is a vulture kite. The film is continuously interesting and I think tries to tackle some pretty difficult themes that we were able to scratch the surface of here. But, you know, in the juxtaposition of the American, British and Japanese point of view, and where do your personal morals and principles lie versus your country versus your orders that's an interesting comparison between the three cultures at the time so i think there's like liam said there's a lot going on here and it's very rich in even just the background and the history so i think for what he was going for they did i think they did a phenomenal job liam let's hear it so i think maybe it's the fact that we're so far removed from it today but i don't know that I agree that making a good adaptation of this novel was much in his mind. I don't think that was like high up on his his list. And maybe again, that's because most people today probably don't even think of this as being based on a novel. You know, it's not like To Kill a Mockingbird where everybody's assigned it in school and they also did a phenomenal film adaptation of it. So it's one that people aren't really reading. I would be surprised if it was still in print without having to order it from like some kind of specialty press. I think the objective maybe in 1950s vocabulary, like the, the vocabulary of cinema that they had and the, just where the, the discourse was at the time. I think this is close as you can get to making an anti-war film in this period of this budget with this kind of mass appeal. It is a much more nuanced look at the motivations behind war, the conflicting parties and nations that are forced together through the the process of going to war with each other. And so I have a hard time thinking that that wasn't the objective to 
make for lack of a, a, a less simplistic term, an anti-war film. You know, it is based on a book that's based on actual events. You know, I agree with you guys that this is different and more successful than Long Tan. But I think the I think where the difference for me comes in is that this isn't trying to tell that story. It's trying to convey a message and it's using the framework of something that actually happened to convey that message and put these people in a particular dynamic situation to air out these philosophies and these conflicts and and do something artistic in that sense. And I think that's why I don't really have a problem with it not being accurate to the way the events really played out, because that was never what it purported to be and never what its intentions were. I don't think this was made for the POWs. I don't think it was made for the book. I think this is very much its own entity to say things about the nature of war that David Lean and the blacklisted screenwriters wanted very much to say. Was it on target? I do think it was. You know, we often say that is it possible to make an anti-war film? And if you can, this is about as close as it gets because I can't imagine anybody watching this and being like, you know what? Fucking signing up for the military in the morning. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Where's the nearest jungle? I'm going to enlist. No, that's that's the last thing that you have. Not only because it doesn't like glamorize any aspect of it, really, like the commando training is the dumbest looking commando training I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, it's just like these guys like running around like idiots outside of a villa. That's like a botanical garden. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Oh, he jumped out of the hydrangeas at me. You know, it's like, <laughs> and I don't know, man, like it, it, it just really doesn't glamorize anything. It makes a lot of stuff look pretty bad, even though obviously not as bad as the conditions actually were still not great. And on top of that, I, I kind of disagree. I think this movie fully veers into boring a time or two, you know, say what you want about boring, but it's not propaganda. Fair. It's tough to, tough to make boring propaganda. So yeah, I do think it was on target in that respect. And did I like it? Honestly, not particularly. There are, there are aspects of this movie that I love. There are performances that I love. There are scenes that I love, but the movie taken as a whole it's a monumental feat of filmmaking. It's a movie that really shouldn't have been able to be made at this period in time based on the other stuff that was being made around it. Mm -hmm. But I never really love watching it. I kind of barely even enjoy watching it. Like it's not a, it's not a very engaging film for me. It is a little bit boring. I think I know that's not going to be the most popular opinion and I don't mean it to be like, this is what I think. Like it's just, I'd seen it before and I bought it on purpose and I wanted to buy it and I watched it again and I was like, yeah, no, I know why I kept putting this off to buy it. I don't need to watch this a lot. It's fine. It's good. It's a good movie. <laughs> it's not a five though, right? No. Hey, hey. Not, not drunk. We don't do that here. <laughs> I forgot to mention at the beginning, but this was kind of an indirect uh, listener choice because it made second place on our polls three times in a row. That's the first time that's happened, right? This is the first time it's happened. So this was our second place listener winner. Next time, we are going to cover the first place winner of our recent poll. And we're going back to Vietnam 
with 1979's Apocalypse Now. Dude, a couple of heavy fucking hitters right in a yeah, row. Yeah, and this is definitely going to get into uh, what is a war film and what is an anti-war film for sure. This is, of course, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written partially by John Milius, starring Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, a extremely young, like 14-year-old, I think, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, as well as Harrison Ford makes an appearance don't forget coked out Dennis Hopper. Yeah, Dennis Hopper. There's been a couple of cuts of this film. We're going to talk about the theatrical cut and the final cut, which came out a couple of years ago. I don't recommend the Redux version, but we will talk about what that is and why it's not recommended uh, in the actual episode. So you can join us on the next episode for that. In the meantime, you can go to our podcast discussion group on Facebook and you can join in on the discussion with us and look out for our next poll where you can vote on one of the films we'll be talking about next. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you guys on the next one. Bye. Bye.